If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about Crunch Chocolate Bars, because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Shakespeare, Pathmaster, our series exploring some of the playwright's most famous works and what they tell us about history. I'm Matt Alton. In this episode, we're discussing Shakespeare's exploration of death in Hamlet. Written at the turn of the 17th century, Hamlet sees the title character haunted, both literally and emotionally, by the fate of his father and his own feelings about life and death. Its key characters also include Claudius, Hamlet's uncle and the new king, Polonius, his chief counsellor, and Ophelia, Polonius's daughter. I spoke to Farah Karim Cooper, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at King's College London and co-director of Education and Research at Shakespeare's Globe, to find out more about what the play reveals about views of mortality and superstition in the 1600s. So we're talking today about Hamlet and how that play tackles with themes of death and mortality. But before we do get into that too deeply, I wanted to give listeners a sense of where this play fits into Shakespeare's sort of canon and his life more generally. When does Hamlet date from and how does it fit into the rest of his plays? So uh, Hamlet is dated, uh, some people date it to 1600, some to 1601, but essentially it's one, it kind of kicks off the great tragedies of the 17th century that Shakespeare writes. And uh, we do know that it was performed at the Globe 
roughly in about 1601. And it's his major revenge tragedy. And he had sort of worked with revenge tragedy before with Titus Andronicus a few years earlier. Uh, but this is really his sort of offering to the Elizabethan revenge tragedy genre. So was that a genre that was very fashionable or established at the time he wrote it? It was. It was really established, very fashionable. And actually, by the time he writes Hamlet, it's kind of going out of fashion, which is really fascinating because you don't see a huge number of Elizabethan type revenge tragedies after that. You get a different kind of tragedy when you move into the Jacobean era. This feels like a very obvious question, but what are the major sort of motifs or themes of revenge tragedy? There are various conventions of revenge tragedy in the Elizabethan period, largely set by, I would say, the Spanish tragedy, which was written by Thomas Kidd in the 1580s. There's often a ghost that kicks things off that's kind of requesting revenge or pleading for revenge. And it's uh, often a personal revenge story. So it's not like the state taking revenge. And it kind of exposes how there's a notion in the Elizabethan period that sort of state sanctioned justice wasn't enough, really. And so you get these sort of personalized revenge motifs in the plays. And then often there's a kind of play within a play where some bizarre, macabre, mask-type pageant or dumb show happens. And as we know, Hamlet really has the most famous one. Does the popularity of a form in which one of the themes is that state justice isn't enough tell us something about the time in which it was popular? I suppose it does. Justice in the 16th and 17th centuries was really selectively given. So it's often justice is, is seen as something that is produced for the state on behalf of the state rather than people's personal lives. And of course, the courts were very, very busy in the Elizabethan period, people getting their own little, I suppose, piece of the pie of justice because they were a very litigious society, which is really fascinating. But in terms of a real sense of justice, I suppose, in the way that we would define it today, I think it would seem quite characteristically different. And as we've talked about, Hamlet is a play with ghosts. It's a play that has much discussion about death, mortality, spirituality. What are some of the things that the play tells us about the way in which death was viewed at the time Shakespeare was writing? So I think the way death is viewed is going through a bit of a flux at this time. A lot of the received wisdom about death that had come from the sort of Catholic medieval world was kind of thrown into chaos with the Reformation. And so what kind of comes around is this sort of culture of questioning or culture of doubt that is sort of typified. And actually, Martin Luther's theses that he put up on the door of the church in Wittenberg, which, of course, Hamlet alludes to quite a lot. So it's a period of questioning. So if you were in a, a medieval Catholic, you would have believed that once you die, you might go to purgatory and your sins would be purged away or your loved ones who were still alive would have to sort of pay for your pardon to the church, for example, or pray for you, and then you might make it to heaven. Or you just go to what Hamlet calls the other place, which is hell, obviously. And all of that is, is, is really entrenched, embedded belief. And then when the Reformation takes place, all of a sudden, the English people have to believe in something completely different. And so Hamlet is kind of, I suppose, negotiating or navigating this the sense of belief chaos, I think. So is Shakespeare using the character of Hamlet to explore some of the doubts and the questions that were going on in society at the time about death? 
Yeah, I think that's, I mean, most critics would agree that Hamlet is doing that. I think what's fascinating is his obsession with ruminating on death which is quite different. I mean, in revenge tragedies like the Spanish tragedy, you've got the character Geronimo, who is very similarly soliloquizing and talking about his grief, etc. But it isn't done in the same contemplative way as it is with Hamlet, which is what makes Hamlet kind of stand out. And of course, it reflects his position as a student at Wittenberg, which is the birthplace of the Reformation. And the Reformation was a space for inquiry and questioning received wisdom. And so you can argue that Hamlet is really kind of negotiating that. But I think what I love about the preoccupation with death in this play is that it's really influenced by a 17th century philosopher, Michel de Montaigne's essay called To Study Philosophy is to Learn to Die. And he talks about the importance of, of having death at the forefront of your mind every day so that you don't become afraid of it, you know, to really grapple with it, to really interrogate it and question it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So Shakespeare's really working with some really hot contemporary thought, if you like, at the time. Yes, absolutely. Montaigne's essays aren't published into English until 1603, but it's it's very likely that he would have had access to the manuscript form. And yeah, this, I mean, this it's an incredible essay. If you haven't read it, you should read it. I always make my students read it because it's a it's a real practical guide to dealing with your own mortality. And that's what Hamlet needs. He needs a practical guide to deal with it because he is really anxious and struggling with it. One of the most famous parts of this play is one of the most famous parts of the whole of Shakespeare's works, which is the to be or not to be speech. How should we look at that part of this play in light of this theme? It's interesting because, you know, for for centuries, people have talked about it as a kind of suicidal, a contemplation of suicide. You know, should I kill myself or should I not? But I think being is something more than just actually your mortality. It's about how you be in the world, whether you're going to be engaged fully with it, or are you going to completely retreat from it? And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to die. But he is very interested in in that speech. And what happens if you do die? And if you do take your own life. So it is about suicide, but it isn't only about suicide, if that makes sense. I think we have to read more into the word to be or the phrase to be. We have to read more into the notion of being and existence. But it does actually take you through the contemplative process and the logic, the process of logical development. How do I think about this question in relation to ancient Roman notions of logic? And that's kind of what he does in that speech. Another famous scene, which I think is probably famous for its iconography more than anything else, is where Hamlet holds a skull. People might not be familiar with the actual specifics of that scene and what it's telling us. Could you talk through that a little bit? Sure. 
I mean, it was really interesting. A while back, I wrote a book on the hand, and I had a couple of chapters on gesture. And that is the most iconographic gesture of, you know, a man holding a skull. And it's very likely that the actor who did that first, Richard Burbage, um, Shakespeare's star actor in his company, was the first person to do that in terms of that gesture was not really one that existed before the play Hamlet. Because I looked for the iconography of that gesture, and, and then the closest I could find was about 10 years afterwards. So what happens in, in that moment is Hamlet is in the graveyard, and he can see that somebody is digging a grave. And so that kind of produces for him a set of inquiries about life and death and how, you know, what is the purpose of it if we're just born to simply become a skull and end up in the ground? And, and what is the point of achieving greatness if you're just going to end up the same as a beggar? And so he has this really, really artful conversation about, I suppose, about the, the way in which death levels you in society and that actually status and hierarchy mean nothing at the end of the day. And there's this moment when he starts thinking about vanity at the same time. And, you know, what's the point of putting cosmetics on your face? Let her paint an inch thick because she's just going to end up looking like this skull. And then he smells it and then he finds death, like his contact, his sensory contact with death disgusts him. So it's a really profound moment. And of course, that's why it's stuck in people's imaginations for centuries. I have no idea whether this is the case. But is it fair to say that this was in some way shocking for audiences at the time, Hamlet actually grappling so physically with mortality? I mean, potentially, but it was really common across Europe to, to sort of look at skulls and the skull was a contemplative object. You know, it was a memento mori, as it's known. And you can see it in paintings. Poets might have a skull on their desk, you know, to kind of think about their own mortality, to remind them that you've got to live your life because you're going to end up like that. And even in Montaigne's essay that I was talking about, he talks about how the ancient Egyptians used to bring out an entire skeleton during their feasts to remind them to eat even more and to enjoy themselves like Epicureans because you're going to end up dead one day. So it's quite common, actually, in Renaissance culture across Europe. So it's potentially more shocking for our culture today than it would have been at the time. I think so, because we sanitize death, really, and many of us have never seen a real skull. We've talked an awful lot there about Hamlet, the character, and how he explores death. How does the wider play engage with these themes? It's interesting because I think that's a good question, because I think when I think about death and Hamlet, Hamlet's the one who's mediating death. So it, whether it's Ophelia's death, you know, we, we tend to see it through Hamlet's eyes, except when Gertrude is the one who describes it. So people who might not know, just quickly, who are Ophelia and Gertrude in relation to Hamlet in this play? Gertrude is Hamlet's mother, and she has married Hamlet's uncle, his father's brother, after his father has died. And it's not, which is the thing that produces the whole tragedy. Ophelia is the daughter of Polonius, who is counselor to the king. And the audience are given to understand that Hamlet and Ophelia have had a relationship of some kind in the past. And then he scorns her when he decides that he's going to take on the persona of the Revenger. And uh, she, unfortunately, her father gets killed by Hamlet. And so she sort of goes what they refer to as mad. And uh, she ends up drowning in a brook. 
that description of her death by Gertrude is perplexing. It's beautiful. It's it's caused artists over time to kind of paint it. You see, in the 19th century, the Pre-Raphaelites had depicted her sort of lying in the brook with flowers and lily pads strewn around her and sort of sensationalized and glorifying young female death. So it's kind of disturbing. Feminists don't love that. Then the grave that's being dug in the graveyard scene is Ophelia's. And Hamlet has not is not aware she's dead at that point because he's been away. And so when he returns and finds that she's dead, he flips out. And gets really, really upset and fights with Laertes. He jumps inside her grave. So what I see happening in the play is Hamlet mediating death for us as an audience. He's commenting on other people's deaths. And then at one point, he actually kills Polonius, who's hiding behind an heiress. And he doesn't know it's Polonius, apparently. He says, oh, is that the king? And he stabs him in his mother's chamber. And then he he starts talking about the smell of death as he's talking about the fact that he killed Polonius later on. So it's all being mediated through Hamlet, as far as I'm concerned. And is part of what contributes to the tragedy of the play Hamlet's inability to act in the face of death? We've talked about how he spends a lot of time ruminating and thinking. Is part of what makes this a tragedy the fact that he could have changed things if he'd acted, not thought? Yeah, I guess so. One of the conventions of revenge tragedy that I failed to mention is delay. So it's actually, it wouldn't be a proper revenge tragedy if he had killed him in the first act. And then, of course, the play would have been over. So so there are very pragmatic, dramaturgical reasons why he delays the death. But yes, it has forced critics to think really deeply about the sort of tension between thought and contemplation and action. And action becomes a really important device in the play, also because it has a meta-theatrical quality in that it is what actors do. The major irony, the meta-irony, is that the actor playing Hamlet can't act. He can't do the action. It is a really extraordinary tension in the play. Is there anything else about superstition or about death in the time this play was written and performed that we've not talked about that we should? I suppose it's it's ghosts. I mean, we're a lot more skeptical about ghosts now. And I think in the Reformation, during the Reformation, what you saw is a kind of creeping skepticism that was coming in, where intellectual reformers were trying to tell people to stop believing in superstition, that this is all associated with quote-unquote popery or Catholicism. And actually, ghosts are just a figment of the imagination. Some people believe that ghosts were a sign. If you saw ghosts or phantoms, then you were probably overly melancholy. And of course, Hamlet is linked to melancholy in lots of different ways. And so sometimes people wonder whether or not the ghost is real. But of course, the very first act and first scene tell us it is because other people besides Hamlet witness its presence. But it's in the chamber when he's in Gertrude's chamber and he's getting furious with her. The ghost reappears and and tells Hamlet, "You, you need to get back to what I asked you to do and leave your mother alone. Turning now to the play as a text, I suppose, what was the reaction to it when it was first performed? Do we get a sense of that? I think it was pretty popular because it was uh, printed twice before the first folio came out. So there are two quartos of Hamlet. On one of the title pages, it said that it was performed multiple times, which suggests that, you know, plays wouldn't come back in the repertorial theater at that time if the audience didn't like them. 
and they certainly wouldn't be printed, why there, which is why there's so many lost plays. Because if a play failed on its first night, it, you wouldn't see it again. And nobody then would want to print it. So the, the very fact of Hamlet's printing three times suggests it, it did pretty well. And do you think it tells us anything about Shakespeare's own attitudes to death and mortality and whether or not they were in step with wider society at the time? It's hard to read biography into the plays of Shakespeare. It's easier to do that with maybe poetry that he kind of oversaw the publication of, but even then he's made himself cryptic. But I think that you get Shakespeare's curiosity and his own grappling with death through many of the plays, through the comedies as well as the tragedies. You know, there there are other disquisitions on death and contemplations of death and really fantastic ideas about death and grief And grief in particular is a a special concern of Shakespeare's. And we know biographically that he experienced his own extreme grief when his son was killed. It's it's quite hard to find Shakespeare himself, but it's hard to deny that death was a major concern or a preoccupation of his, particularly if he's read Montaigne. I always talk about Montaigne because I love Montaigne. And, And it's really interesting you mentioned some other plays there. What other plays can we see as sharing similar thematic concerns? Are there plays that this is sort of related to? I think within Shakespeare's canon, Hamlet isn't necessarily related to other plays, but I think there are, you get parallels between characterization and consideration of death. Hamlet is someone who talks directly to the audience frequently, so he forms a relationship with them. And that's very similar to other characters in plays, including Richard III, of course, who's a villain. He establishes a rapport with the audience. Aaron the Moor from Titus Andronicus, Shakespeare's first ever Black character, he also establishes a kind of rapport with the audience. And he has a, a speech where he talks about his identity that's very similar to Hamlet's speech about, I may seem to be wearing black and I seem to be appearing to mourn, but what I'm wearing is telling you exactly what I'm feeling. And Aaron has a a similar speech where he talks about his blackness as being truth and authentic. And they're kind of shaped and, and structured in the same way, those speeches. So you can see Shakespeare sort of playing with different ideas throughout his canon. You mentioned earlier, one of the key facets of this sort of play was the idea of a play within a play. Is there something there that Shakespeare is saying about reality and illusion and truth? Yeah, I think Shakespeare being a man of the theatre meaning that he worked in it daily. Uh, he was a member of the company. He was a sharer. He was a shareholder in the, in the playhouse itself. And he was an actor and their house playwright. So that's pretty intimate. So he is really interested in illusion. And he is interested in allegory and performance and the different modes of performance. So with the play within a play, before you get to the speaking part, there's a dumb show, which is a sort of prologue to the play within a play. And you have characters who are using quite elaborate gestures because they're not speaking. So it's like pantomime. And the kind of truth that comes from that, Shakespeare's really fascinated by. You can see that he's fascinated by how audiences interpret that. And then I think he's really interested in the effect that theater has on individuals, how theater can sort of push into their bodies and push into their hearts. And you really see that in the play within a play. Once it's been performed, Claudius realizes what's going on, or at least his his conscience has been pricked by the play that he's seen before him. And he runs out 
and, and goes to pray for forgiveness, which is exactly what Hamlet intended to do, to, to test his guilt. And so theater has a real charge in the way that it can impact upon an individual. I wanted to talk a bit about the ways in which the play itself has changed over time, I suppose, both in terms of its content and in terms of how it's been regarded. Can we trace changes or shifts in reception over the centuries between then and now? Yes. I mean, I suppose if you do a performance history, you can see because obviously each generation brings a different kind of viewing practice and a reception. And it's determined by that culture and it's determined by the sort of socio-political environment of that culture. So in the 18th century, Hamlet would have been seen quite differently from how he would have been seen in the uh, Restoration period. Hamlet is sort of picked apart by people like Samuel Johnson and, uh, and and Voltaire, who think that ghosts are ridiculous, and that how can you put some such a stupid device in a play that's asking really big, important questions? What's really interesting is the Globe did a world tour of Hamlet um, back in 2014 to 2016. And they went into about 150 countries. And we sent a couple of researchers along to do some interviews with audience afterwards. And how Hamlet is received in different parts of the world depends on beliefs and customs. There are some cultures who ghosts for them are real. They represent ancestry. And so the ghost of old Hamlet was hugely charged in some parts of the world and made the play even more believable. And, and yet in the West, we're so skeptical about ghosts. And so we kind of almost excuse that aspect of the play. That's so interesting, the extent to which the reality of a culture can shape the perception of a fictional world. That, that's so interesting. A hundred percent, yeah. And what's interesting to me about this play is it seems to be one that still captures the imagination, at least here in Britain, because, for instance, the 2008 David Tennant and Patrick Stewart performance, which I think has recently been released onto the iPlayer, at least in the UK. Do you think it tells us something that it's still able to capture our imagination so much? I think it does. I think we have to think about who it's for. The play has been linked for so long with a kind of white masculinity. And that's why it stayed in the imagination for so long. And it was often referred to as a universal. But universal always meant, I mean, from the 18th century on, it always meant white men of a certain class. And so uh, that is the audience that's kind of receiving it. And and actually, when you, you go out and see Hamlet being performed around the world through a kind of global appropriation of Shakespeare, you see very different aspects of the play being highlighted and Hamlet himself coming across as a crybaby or as, as whiny. And actually, even now, a lot of critics are beginning to question the reasons why we've upheld Hamlet. There's no doubt that it's a sublime play in so many different ways, but why have we been holding it as the most valuable artifact of Western culture? We've obviously only lightly touched there on a whole range of issues and themes and concerns, but why finally do you think Hamlet is still so worth exploring and watching and reading now in 2023? I think it's because it's a really great opportunity to read Hamlet in a new way and to find new methodologies of interpreting the play, new methodologies of performing it, turning it on its head so that you can see it from all angles. Because I think, as I said, 
that Hamlet has been skewed by one sort of reception for centuries. And I think now's a really exciting time to see that play in a different way. That was Farah Kareem Cooper, author of books including The Great White Bard, Shakespeare, Race and the Future, published by One World. Don't miss the other episodes in this series. And by heading to our specials feed, you can also enjoy four extra bonus episodes featuring experts delving into plays including Macbeth and The Tempest by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts and heading to our specials feed or subscribing to the History Extra website.